Shannon wants to build a tiny house. We can use it at a campground or at someone's house for staying with them. But also, if we're off grid with no water hookups, no electric hookups, nothing, it's got the infrastructure built in that we can make that happen. This is the same way I would think about a tiny house. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 125 with Matt Gabriel. Sometime around March of 2020, I went to the grocery store to stock up on some things, and I discovered that most of the staples like flour and rice and beans and toilet paper were out of stock. You may be able to relate to my experience, but my guest, Matt Gabriel, cannot. Matt is a prepper who specializes in outdoor survival skills, and he's here to help us get into a prepper mindset so that we can learn to survive and thrive in whatever situations nature throws our way, and how to do it while living tiny. Stick around. But before we get started, If you have questions that you'd like me to answer live on the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast, I've opened a new way for you to submit them. You can now record a question to be answered on the show. To submit your question, head over to thetinyhouse.net slash ask and hit the appropriate button. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash ask, where you can record a question for me to answer on the show. I love hearing from listeners, and I can't wait to answer your tiny house questions, whether it's building, living, or anything related to the tiny house lifestyle. Everything is fair game. Head over to thetinyhouse.net slash ask to submit your question today. I'm here with Matt Gabriel. Matt Animal Man Gabriel began developing a love of outdoors as a young child. When he was 11 years old, his father bought him a survival manual, Tom Brown's Field Guide to Wilderness Survival, and so began Matt's lifelong obsession with survival skills. Matt began practicing and trying to duplicate everything from the book that he could on weekends and after school. As an adult, Matt attended two-week-long professional survivor courses that proved instrumental in forming the core of his survival repertoire. He then spent years increasing his knowledge and experience level by practicing and experimenting on a daily basis. In 2015, Matt felt the calling to begin teaching, so he began posting videos on YouTube. Today, he travels throughout New England sharing his skills. Matt Gabriel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, man. Nice to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So I was hoping to start off because, you know, we we got talking about doing this interview right around the time that the pandemic was hitting. And, you know, there was a lot of kind of increased awareness and talk about prepping, preppers. Um, Do you consider yourself a prepper? And also, what is a prepper? Actually, let's start there. What is a prepper? What is a prepper? It really depends on who you ask. Uh, In in the survival among survivalists, we have this saying, you know, every, every answer is, it depends. It's always, it depends. Depends on so many things. So a lot of people, unfortunately, know about preppers from those shows like Doomsday Prepper and things like that, that kind of cast preppers in a bad way, in a bad light. Um, they look at preppers as crazy people and hoarders and things like that. And, and of course, yeah, there are some people that are like that, just like with anything. In any category of people, there are some people that kind of go over the top with it 
uh, that might make that group look bad or, or fall into a stereotype, you know. But um, for me, I'm I'm kind of a hybrid, you know. I'm into preparedness. I love bushcraft. I'm a hunter. I'm a fisherman. I have trapping skills. I love primitive survival skills. You know, all these different things, and to me, they kind of blend together into my individual skill set. So yeah, I consider myself a prepper, but I don't go out and you know scream it and run down the road and scream it out my lungs. I'm a prepper. You kind of have to be careful who you let in on this stuff. I'm kind of in a rough spot because I'm on YouTube, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, and I post my videos and things like that all the time. So a lot more people know me than would know, you know, if you were a prepper, Ethan, um, and you weren't doing a podcast about prepping. Like, you know a lot of people, obviously, but they probably wouldn't know unless you told them you were, you know? Sure. So what, what is it that you're prepping for? That's another thing that 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 bothers me because you watch those shows and they're like, we're prepping for the 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 super volcano or the zombies. That's the big one, the zombies. Um, I try not to fall into one one uh, one of those traps where you're preparing for one specific thing. I kind of look at it like it's an insurance policy, but it's a physical insurance policy, and it could help you with anything. I mean, when I get into the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about, I'll, I'll talk about different different possibilities of things that could happen and what you can prepare for and why. Um, but I prepare for anything. Okay, so it's just kind of a general sense of preparedness of, like, not having power for a period of time or not having access to water or, like, correct me, is this true? Yeah, yeah. So those are on the list. Yeah, for sure. To make you understand it better, I, sh- I you know, I should probably go in order. Sure. Because I have some notes that I, that I was writing down when, when we were going to do this a few weeks ago. Yeah, let's do it. So to start like from the top, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are wondering, how do I fit in with the tiny house lifestyle? You know, sure. that's the thing, you know, Ethan and I met at, at our friend Deke's um, tiny house summer camp probably in 2016, right? Yeah, it's been a couple of years. And Deke has me come every year. Deke and I have been good friends because our, our kids go to school together. And he asked me to go and teach wild edible walks and an archery tournament, which is always like tons of fun. I prepare the bonfire talks sometimes and I do primitive fire demos. And I did a smelting demo one time with aluminum cans, which was kind of cool. So like I wasn't sure how I was going to fit in. And I went the first year and everyone was like super into it. And everyone was just so awesome and so cool. So he's had me back every year. And I do, I do think that there is a definite overlap with prepping and survivalism and the tiny house living. I kind of feel like, you know, and you know a lot more about tiny house people than I do. The, the little bit that I know is from my fiance Shannon and Deke and, and all you guys at tiny house. I can't pretty much. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of feel like self-reliance is a big part of it. Um, less of a footprint is a big part of it. Uh, saving money is a big motivator. And for me, I don't know if you've ever heard of, but you know what bugging out is? You ever hear that term bugging out? Well, I've, I've heard, I've heard the term like having a bug out bag. Yeah. Okay. There's also things like bug out trailers, bug out campers, bug out vehicles. If you've got a tiny house on wheels, that's a ready made bug out trailer. If you design it that way, but it definitely could be. So, um, so that's kind of an interesting concept to think. 
so I, I think there definitely is overlap. And, you know, I run two businesses here. The, the survival instruction is one of them, but also I have about 100 exotic animals here that are mostly rescued or, or adopted. And I have crocodiles and snakes and lizards, all kinds of furry animals, you know, tarantulas, and I do educational programs with them. And a lot of people would, would think, you know, what a hypocrite. He takes care of these animals, adopts them, but also he teaches how to hunt. He's a hunter. And you might wonder, like, they're kind of like opposites. But for me, each one kind of complements the other and makes the other one better. I use my survival skills to forage wild edibles to feed my animal all the time. And that saves money. It's healthier. It's, it's, it's fresher than stuff to market, for example. I have backups for our power in case power goes out because the reptiles have to stay warm, you know. So my businesses kind of complement each other. Now, why, why is prepping a good idea? Most of us have various insurance. We have, you know, health insurance, homeowners or rental insurance, business insurance, life insurance. It goes on and on and on. But for me, if you look at the bare necessities of what we need to survive, you know, as the human animal, we don't need all these digital insurance policies. What we need is we need food, we need water, we need shelter, and we need some, you know, some way of making fire. Fire kind of fans out into energy and heating and all this other stuff, but those are the main four. It's, you know, food, water, fire, shelter. So having preparedness skills and survival skills is, in many ways, the ultimate concrete physical insurance policy. And when I bring it like that to people, it, it kind of opens their eyes a little bit. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, it, it absolutely makes sense. And I'm, I'm just reflecting on, you know, how behind I felt as this whole thing was hitting, like, you know, I... I like heard about it well in advance of when people were like going crazy buying stuff. And I was like, I don't need to be, I don't need to be crazy and go and like go to Costco and buy a bunch of extra bulk food kind of thing. But by the time I was like, Oh, this could really be like a thing. And I might not want to go to the grocery store for, for a month or two, you know, so was everyone else. Um, yeah. And so I think that in my own perspective, I've, I've shifted from being like, oh, that's crazy, or that's kind of like hoarding, to saying like, you know, I don't know that I'll ever, you know, now that this has happened, like, maybe I'll always have an extra like bag of flour and like dried yeast and some cans of, of beans and other just staples that can last for a long time and just, just always have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of people are going to be going through that trans- transformation too. And me and a lot of my like prepper pals have been talking about this. You know, if we think people are going to be jumping on board and, and this whole thing is going to really um, make preparedness a lot more in the forefront of things, because until now people looked at it like it was a joke. And I don't know. I'm really not sure because I think people will only go so far with it. Most people. Like you said, like you'll get maybe some extra teepees and extra beans and rice and first aid supplies and stuff like that. And that helps up to a point and yeah, it's a good thing to have it. But then there's that extra jump to learning how to be self-reliant and not even needing to resupply. Yeah. So, and that's the jump that many people are not going to. Let's talk about that jump. Like, what do you see 
what do you see as being part of that that jump to self-reliance what are what are some things that you teach or that you you know if i was like all right i've got my i've got my tp i've got my rice and beans i want to learn something now so that i don't have to go back to the store okay so if you think about the things that you actually need and use every day food's top of the list everyone eats every day unless you're doing some kind of health fast basically everyone eats every day right Everyone's going crazy buying guns now and all that stuff. And hopefully you never need to use that in a defensive way. But if you look at it, like everyone's spending all this money on on bullets and buying new guns and stuff, and they're probably never going to use them. They probably don't have training to use them anyway. Sure. And it's like... But you need food every day. That's a really good point. And I think that like we can easily get caught up and basically fall into a like a marketing and sales trick like yeah like you know there are a lot of guns there like people probably don't need more guns but they're feeling the need to buy them and they're spending they're spending their money on them when guns are sexy man <laughs> <laughs> happiness is a warm gun i believe uh john lennon said although i don't think that he was actually talking about firearm <laughs> but no i think it's like People get into this whole mentality where it, they love gear. They're they're gear snobs, and they call they call it tactical. Everything is tactical. They have crazy names for all these different things, acronyms for it. And people get sucked into it, and I'm guilty too, because gear is cool, man. Companies send me stuff to review on YouTube, my YouTube channel, all the time, and sometimes I'm like, yeah, if I think it's a good piece of gear, and I've heard of them. Other times I'm like, nope, can't do it. Um, but yeah, so like. The food thing, okay? So instead of trying to stock up, especially with tiny house people, if you have limited space, you know, instead of trying to stock up and do something like copy canning, you ever hear of copy canning? No. Copy canning is, it's a, it's a prepper term. It's like, if you're going to buy one can of Campbell's soup and you normally, during normal times, if you go and you buy just that one can for this, okay, next time you go, you're going to buy two instead and you put one away in the pantry called copy canning you buy an extra of every single thing um or as many things as you can within your budget and you stock up that way with a tiny house that only works up to a certain point and then you're out of space unless you're real creative so instead of stocking up on things the switch would be learning how to forage learning wild edibles that's the main one do a lot of tiny house people tend to be vegetarian or vegan i mean you probably know better than i do i know a few that are but is that a big thing I mean, I can't, I can't speak for the, for all tiny house people. I, I think that there is a, certainly a subset of the tiny house movement who are very concerned about, you know, climate change and being environmentally (laughs) conscious. And I think that, that within that group, you know, there are a lot of people who choose not to eat meat environmentally or for other reasons, but I, I don't, I would, I would guess that there's probably a higher percentage of of vegetarian and vegans in the tiny house movement than there are in the general population but i don't think that it's like a requirement major percentage okay yeah okay all right so um so yeah learning wild edibles wild medicinals the there are plants and trees around everywhere in north america that like if i took you in a plane and dropped you out and dropped you off the plane you can walk and find three out of the four of these top four plants anywhere in the country. What are they? Uh, grass, 
which people don't think of. Grass is edible and medicinal. Cattails, pine trees, and oak trees. Those are the top four to know because there are parts of them that are edible all year round, medicinal all year round. And you can walk and find at least three of them anywhere in the country. And around here in New England, they're everywhere. I have, I have three out of those four in my yard. And then you know, cattails are right down the block. So those are the top four to know. But I always tell people, start with three books, three wild edibles books, and you cross-reference. That way, if one of the books has an error, you don't screw up and get sick or poison yourself. You check all three. I had somebody teach me, so I kind of had a jump start on that. But I didn't really pay attention. I was, I was being a jerk. I wasn't paying attention at, at survival school. So I wanted to learn all the sexy stuff, how to make a bow and how to make spears, playing with fire. And I went home and I was like, what do I want to do first? And I was like, dang it, every single skill, if I learned plants and paid attention, that would help me with all of them. So in many ways, plants is, is kind of where it's at. But learning, learning these plants, man, and a lot of them, they're around and people think they're weeds. Most of our weeds, the most common weeds, are actually very nutritious and highly medicinal. And people yank them out because they want just that green lawn. I don't know what it is, people on their lawns. I don't get it. So are you kind of, when you talk about these plants, are you suggesting that you could survive on them solely or that you could supplement what you have to kind of extend? Supplement for sure, easily. But pine tree inner bark, for example. Um, have you ever heard of the Adirondack Mountains in New York and the Adirondack Indians? Yeah, I, I can almost see the Adirondack Mountains from, from where I'm sitting right now. They're right Dude, across that's the awesome. Lake. Yeah. Okay. Um, I grew up in New York, and I went to I went to college in, at SUNY New Paltz. But my uncle, growing up, had a hunting lodge and, and property in uh, the Catskill Mountains, which is south of the Adirondack. But family friends were up in the Adirondacks. They have a cabin there, and we go there all the time. There, the Adirondack Indians they were named that by neighboring tribes. It's like derogatory. It means bark eater. It refers to them surviving most of the year off just the inner bark from pine tree. Wow! So that right there says a lot and i've eaten it it's not bad what it's is it what's taste. it like and how do you prepare it it's an acquired taste so if you go to a pine tree if you look at a large tree um a very very large tree with some girth to it the bark looks kind of crumbly and scabby at the bottom but if you look higher up and if you look on the branches it's smooth and the bark is thinner that's where you look and you take a knife blade and you slice a strip off you never want to girdle around the tree because that'll kill it or around a branch, unless you're harvesting the whole branch to use for other things too. Um, you always have to be responsible with this. But you take one long strip, and you can then separate that inner bark, which is kind of off-white, from the outer bark. On the outer bark, you can make waterproof containers out of it, do all kinds of crafts. You can weave baskets out of it. It's it's awesome on its own. But just the the inner bark, it's very um, it's very tough. You can you can actually make it into cordage. You can tie it around yourself as bandages. It has antibacterial properties too. But uh, it's very fibrous and you can either take a knife blade at a right angle and scrape it to get like the little stringy parts off and you can eat that raw. It's still very chewy though. Or you can scrape it off, roast it over a fire and make almost like potato chip type of things. You can throw it in a super stew. 
you can dry it and then grind it up into flour to add to cattail flour or acorn flour or things like that. Very versatile. Cool. So just knowing things like that, I mean, you can supplement your diet with just pine tree bark. And although it's not going to taste awesome, a lot of, a lot of wild edibles kind of taste bland. But if you're mixing it with food you have stored, all of a sudden, all of your food goes much further, you know? So sure. That's one way to think about it. Yeah, I'm just, you know, my, my wife and I will forage, I think, for like maybe like the sexier things like chanterelle mushrooms yeah. or like we'll look around for morels. We've, we've only ever found like one or two. Um, ramps in the spring. Okay. Fiddleheads. The kind of like, they've almost been like become fetishized, like wild foods. Um, yeah. Like you can get fiddleheads at Whole Foods. Yeah. And they're expensive. And same with ramps and same with uh-huh. chanterelle mushrooms. You ever, you ever see burdock root at Whole Foods? Well, we don't actually, I, there is no Whole Foods here in Burlington, okay. which, but we do have a couple of local like health food stores, food co-ops. Have I ever seen burdock root? It looks like a carrot, but it's brown. Yeah, I think I've seen it. I maybe even... Anyway, I've seen it at Whole Foods around here. and It's expensive. I've maybe even gotten it in a CSA once or twice. But it grows wild all over the place here. And some of these taproots, dude, are as fat as your wrist and like three feet long. Yeah, and that's... I actually, um, we had a friend who was into this who took us um, foraging for, for cattail rhizomes. Okay. Is that the same thing? No, no, no. Okay. A, a rhizome is um, a horizontal underground root, just like grass has, because cattails are a member of the grass family. Okay. Um, so just like grass, they, they have the underground root that goes kind of horizontal to the surface, and then at certain points, it pops up, sends up a new shoot that'll become a new cattail plant. And then the new shoot, the new rhizomes look like a little white horn. You call those forms. You can just rinse those off and eat those raw. They taste like cucumber. Nice. Yeah, we were uh, tromping around in the woods, I think in like spring, reaching our hands into like recently thawed mud bogs, like so <laughs> cold, like the coldest. <laughs> um, but what, like say more. Sorry, I were like jumping all over the place. But That's it's, okay, it's, man. It's awesome. Like what are so burdock root is one. What are some of the other kind of taproot type things that that you can forage for? Um, taproot and then Queen Anne's lace, which is wild carrot, is a major one. I have them all over my yard, and people don't know. People, like you would dig it up and be like, "Oh, it's not a carrot; it's white." Well, wild carrots are white. Um, and um, so those are like the main two that I go for around here: wild carrots and then the burdock, and then. There's a lot of little herbs and what about greens? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, smaller things like like I'm I'm considering writing a book about very common plants in people's yards that are weeds, and I started making a list. I'm like, yeah, I'll probably do like six or seven or eight of them. My list's got like sixteen of them on it already, and they're all in my yard right now. You've got like pokeweed, chickweed, milkweed, anything with weed in it. <laughs> anything with weed in the name generally is very uh nutritious and probably medicinal but it's got weed in the name you know i've i've been over families family friends houses and family members houses and someone asked me like what this was and i'm like oh it's poke weed next thing i know she yanked it up yanked it right up just i'm like dude that was edible and medicinal and we were at a family friend's house they had milkweed and and i was looking at him like oh dude your milkweed's beautiful he's like what i'm like 
it's milkweed. Look at all the monarch butterflies and everything. And next thing I know, next time I came over, it was gone. Milkweed was gone. So now I keep my mouth shut unless they ask. You have to like, um, you have to rename things like that. That's the butterfly plant or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> that's monarch, monarch greens. Yeah. But- so I wanted to ask actually about, about probably the most known and common, like the most identifiable thing that we all think of as a weed, which is dandelions. For sure. Um, so I know people make dandelion wine. Oh yeah. And wonderful. I've now the dandelion greens are also edible, right? It's every part of it's edible. Wow. Yeah. Um, you just have to follow the preparation rules. So, so yeah, so the, the, just the flower petals, you can pull the petals off or have a kid help you and mix them into pancake batter, mix them into muffin mix, whatever bread, whatever you're making to add nutrition and pretty colors into whatever you're making the whole entire flower heads. I've just taken, you know, the instant Bisquick mix in the yellow container, dump a handful of dandelion flowers in there, put the water and shake it up. You've got instant fritters. Um, and they're good. Nice. The roots, you can dry the roots and grind it up to make a coffee substitute. And it tastes like coffee, but no caffeine. It's just for taste. Just for people that have that habit, they've got to have their cup of coffee. You're cheating yourself out of the caffeine there, but it's better than nothing. Yes. Um, and then the actual leaves are edible, but the larger the leaves are, the more bitter they get. So I tend to like eating raw, the small leaves. If you're using salad dressing, it doesn't matter. And I'm used to everything being bitter anyway, so it doesn't bother me anyways. But for most people, they don't, it's too much bitterness for them. So you can take the larger leaves and cook them in a skillet like spinach. Some olive oil seasonings, cook it like that. And then, um, the coolest part that most people don't know about is if you yank up a dandelion, you lop all the leaves off and lop the root off. That one little nub between where the root starts and where the leaves come out, you put that in a soup or a stew and cook it. It's like a little baked potato. You got the flavor of it, the consistency of it, and I love them. They're they're delicious. That's awesome. So you you and your family kind of add these these foods in like regularly. Not as much as I should, uh, but yeah, we, we do, and I try to. And I go out on excursions by myself with either just a knife or a knife and a flint and steel and a water bottle, and I practice my skills. I've got a survival camp with a wigwam that I built that I go out to, um, and I practice my skills there. Nice. So you'll go with no, with no food? No. Nice. No. And before the wigwam was there, I would go out with just my clothing and a knife. And one time, I didn't even bother taking a knife. I made stone tools. Cool. But so, so yeah, I practice, I practice a lot. We try to weave them into our meals. Like for example, I had a bunch of garlic mustard growing in the yard and I was going to mow and I'm like, I don't want to mow it. I feel bad. It's wasteful. So before I mow it, I picked a bunch of it in the, in the refrigerator so we can add it to something. Nice. I'm curious. I want to kind of steer back a little bit to, to tiny houses and design. If, if you were gonna build yourself a tiny house on wheels like you know the the standard tiny house what are some some features or some design elements that that you might think about as a survivalist as a prepper like if if you had the chance to to have design your own house like what are some things that you would look for or want to incorporate okay i thought about this a lot actually because shannon wants to build a tiny house 
She also wants to, to build a she shed in the yard. And I have a, um, a, how big is it? I think it's an 18 foot camping travel trailer in the driveway. Shannon and I just bought for 50 bucks a 1960s pop-up that we're going to kind of rebuild. And um, I want everything from, I have a lot of experience camping and I want everything to be, so yeah, we can, we can use that at a campground or at someone's house for staying with them. But also if we're off grid with no water hookups, no electric hookups, nothing, it's got the infrastructure built in that we can make that happen. And this is the same way I would think about a tiny house. So instead of having it geared toward being plugged into town water and electric, like an electric supply, you can create it in a way that, yeah, it can do that, but it can also do anything else. You want. Um, and a lot of people, I don't think, think that way. But if you're smart with planning, you can make it happen. So for me, um, I look at all the different ways that you can power it, for example. You know, people use propane, people use electric, right? And I want to have an electrical system, but I don't want to rely on the grid necessarily. So a lot of people are talking about these solar generators and solar panels and stuff like that. I listened to a podcast called the Survival Podcast. And one of the guys that the guy that runs that has on, it used to be an engineer for Chrysler, I believe. And he designed a way of making a home emergency battery bank and i kind of took what he did watched his videos looked at the photos listened to it and i kind of made it my own so rather than get a professional system installed or buy all the different professional components i build mine where i have every single part that i need i can get it at any walmart any home depot any other hardware store so if something breaks or if God forbid the crap hits the fan, you have to scavenge something. There's always somewhere to find it. It uses 12 volts deep cycle marine batteries. I actually have two battery banks in my house. My big one downstairs has three um, group 29, which is the second largest size marine batteries. It's got a 30 amp charge controller that keeps them topped off. And it's got several different sized inverters. And then what I'm doing now is I took my dad and I took the DC motor out of a treadmill. So I can start to build a wind turbine and then eventually I'm going to get some small solar also. So we have all these ways of charging this thing. And I'm going to build the same battery bank type of thing in the trailer because you plug in to electric, it keeps it topped off in case you want to use it. But then if you're off grid or the power goes out or whatever, you have this battery bank. And right now I don't have solar and I don't have the wind turbine. So what I do is I can charge that from, I have two generators here, two gas generators. I can charge from a generators or I can take the battery outside, hook it up to my car with jumper cables. I can charge directly from my car. So people don't realize that your car is a $30,000 generator that's more efficient with fuel than any generator you're going to buy at the hardware store. All you need is an inverter. And people, most people don't know what an inverter is or what it does. But that can power most of the stuff in your house. It can power your fridge, can power your lighting. Um, it's an amazing prep to have, and one of the first ones I recommend getting. Yeah. So you have this set up. I'm guessing not to like a whole house transfer switch, but that you would, you know, in the event of an extended outage, you'd probably like run an extension cord up to your fridge so that your food doesn't spoil, and you'd run some lights, charge your laptop, that kind of stuff. Well, the battery bank has its limits. Yeah, you could 
run things like your fridge off of it, but you don't want to because of how quickly it drains the battery. So that's why I have generators too. So when we lose power, and we lose power here quite commonly, um, we have a transfer panel that I had installed that if I fire up the main generator, it transfers just part of the house, the critical stuff, my reptile room, the heating and lighting and all that for them. And then it does the fridges and freezers in both kitchens because I have, I have an upstairs kitchen and a downstairs kitchen. So it keeps all that going. Keeps I have a well, so it keeps the well pump and my hot water heater going. So all the stuff we really need and then a few out. And then I run extension cords for the rest. So if you have a need for running something like a fridge, unless it's like a 12-volt fridge, or, um, or a waffle iron, or a hair straightener, or an air conditioner, or people need their coffee makers, you know, that's something that would be a candidate for having a small generator as part of your setup and a, and a, a five-gallon can of gas. But the battery bank can do everything else. It can do everything that's small wattage. It can do electric blankets, heating pads, charging any of your devices. We, when we lost power last time, I had the flat screen TV going. We had movies on for the kids. All the lighting. All the low wattage stuff you can do. Have my computer go, running. So that's what the battery bank is for. And then you just charge it up as you know, if you need a generator on for an hour, so you can cool down the fridge. All you need to do is put it on for an hour twice a day, and it keeps the fridges and freezers cold. But during that hour, you also recharge the battery bank. So, if you think about it that way, like if you're um, going to be using your car for this with an inverter to keep your house going, the average car only at idle burns maybe a quarter gallon of fuel mine does i'm sure they're all different but a quarter gallon be doing that twice a day for an hour your gas goes a long way and i store a lot of gas too yeah one one interesting thing that i've read about is um people who have hybrid cars particularly priuses they're even more efficient with fuel because essentially the the gas engine runs for just a short amount of time to keep the hybrid battery charged up. Yep. And then the hybrid battery keeps the the 12 volt battery chopped up. And so Okay. I've read some stories about people who kept their fridges powered through, you know, like I believe it was through Hurricane Harvey, um 7 8 days without power and they only had the gas that was in the tank of the Prius and it used not very much. All they had was just an inverter hooked up to the Prius. That's awesome. Running in the driveway, yeah. That's awesome. So yeah, the, the hybrid car is truly a generator on wheels. Yeah. So I would say like, especially if you're going to have a tiny house on wheels and you're going to be pulling it with a vehicle, you're going to be pulling it with your car, your truck that runs on gas, then have a generator so you can run your the large things you need for your tiny house for convenience, but then also you can recharge your battery bank directly from the car. If you've got 20-foot jumper cables, you don't even have to unhitch the tiny house. You can just have your car idling, pop the hood, hook up the cables, recharge your battery bank, and and you're good to go. You don't have to do a whole song and dance to do it. So you mentioned that like the battery bank is one of the first kind of preps that you you advise. What are what are some of what are some additional ones that you like to tell newbies? Um, I think you should have two different ways for cooking and two different ways for heating. 
And I don't mean I don't mean two different electric ways, you know, like not like an electric range and then an electric oplate. I mean one electric, one propane, that type of thing. And I love propane too, just like you can get gas cans and you can get gas anywhere if you need to, no matter where you are, you're gonna find someone that has gas, you know, or you can commandeer gas. Um same with propane. Everyone's got a 20-pound tank on their grill behind their house. The campgrounds, they, they sell them. They fill them there. So like both of my trailers, um, the one that I use now has two 20-pound tanks. And then the new one doesn't have any yet, but I'm going to install two 20-pound tanks on there. That way, using one, one's on deck. If one's totally you know, depleted, you work off the second tank while you're getting the other one filled. And so propane is great. You can have an electric heater for when you're plugged in somewhere, but then if you go off grid, use the propane heater. And then the same, the same with, uh, with cooking. Nice. And these are definitely things that people can think about as they're, you know, building or planning a tiny house. Right. That's my plan with our small trailer is to have two ways for each of them for redundancy, you know? Overall, the, the, the top, the first thing that I always tell people they need is the bug out bag. That should be like the number one thing you do. Well, what, what is it and what's in it? Okay. So if you don't know what bugging out is, we'll start from scratch here. Bugging out is if something bad happens, which could be anything really, you want to have everything that you need to live off of for at least two to three days in one location. That's the big thing. So when I teach this to, to kids or teenagers, a lot of libraries around here before the pandemic, pandemic would have me on, uh, have me over the library to teach teenagers survival skills. And I go through with them, you know, like, what are the things that you need every day? And they'd be like, water, food, uh, my cell phone, you know, things like that. So I'm like, okay, then that's what goes in your bag. And one of those little batteries to charge your phone, extra charging cables for your phone, a 12-volt charging plug, and the the out the wall outlet charging plug both should go in there bottle of water food a change of clothing all the basic stuff so that's the basic stuff but then it kind of mushrooms out from there depending on how prepared you want to be but basically it's everything in one spot and you know emergencies crap hitting the fan for you might be different than crap hitting the fan somewhere else in the country for someone else it's not always about the zombies, man. It could be pandemic. <laughs> Sound familiar? It could be riots and social unrest. Sound familiar? Uh, getting out of there. It could be nuclear, natural disasters. It could be um, the problems with the economy. It could be, do you know what an EMP or electromagnetic pulse is? I've heard of it. Okay. So that's the thing that the sun gives it off from time to, sun, from time, to time, but also nuclear weapons um if someone shot one into the atmosphere and set it off that can set off a pulse that could possibly mess up cars electronics and stuff like that so things like that but then also people don't think about like um, a death in the family is a life-changing event for you that's crap hitting the fan for you if you're really sick like if if you or your family member gets cancer if someone loses their job you know, i had to close down my businesses because of this in march so I'm just collecting unemployment now. My my whole I don't know if I can even get it started back up again. But you know, and I've had things happen where I had a bug out bag packed when my ex-wife was pregnant with my son. She got hit by a car when she was pregnant. 
and her car got totaled. And I got the phone call and I rushed over there and I was, I had my animals in the back of the car and I was supposed to drop them off home at home and then meet her at the hospital. And I was so freaked out. I couldn't remember where I lived and I couldn't remember where, where, what animal went in what cage. And this is something I do every damn day. That's how much people freak out. So having all your stuff in one spot and just one thing to grab can save you time, save you stress and save you not having things when you need them. No decisions. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's all about. And, and that's like a real world scenario that happens to people. So they understand, but if you need to evacuate for some other bigger reason, that bag's got your back. It's, it's there. And people keep them near their back door. Some people keep them next to their bed or in their closet. There's different varieties of these too. I have what's called a get-home bag that stays in my car underneath the trunk, locked in there all the time. So that's a bug-out bag. What do you keep in there? Oh, dude. <laughs> you don't even want to know. The level that I'm at with this and my experience levels, I have all kinds of all kinds of stuff in there. But so there's the get home bag, there's the bug out bag. If you want to do one level higher for a bug out bag than just basic stuff, think about what you would take on a weekend backpacking trip. And that's the stuff that would go in there. You know, all that stuff to be several life. Food, extra food to cook, trail meals, a, wh- a little cooking stove waste purifier water, a metal canteen, stuff like that. And then the holy grail of bug out bags is called an inch bag. It stands for I'm never coming home. That is if something bad happened, the zombies rose, and you don't think you're ever going to come back, what would you put in there? And that's long-term self-aligned stuff. That's at such a high level, though, that most people wouldn't even, don't even want to think about it and wouldn't even know where to start with that. Also, probably a pretty high cost, too. You have to really work up yeah. to, to buying all that extra stuff. I have an inch bag. I don't even want to think about how many thousands I've, I've dumped into that so far. And it's all these bags, guys, it's, they're never done. It's, it's an ongoing, changing thing. You finally think you've got it, and then you're like, you watch one stupid YouTube video, and you're like, ah, and you like start over and like throw these out of the bag, and now you buy some new stuff that you think will work better. Or you decide it's too heavy. It's just an ongoing thing that just never ends. Wow. Well, this has been really, really informative. I, I like feel like we could just go all day, but I totally I do want to ask. Um, you know, I ask all my guests for two or three, you know, book or or YouTube or whatever recommendations for where people can learn more. So, um, you mentioned the survival podcast already. Maybe you could. Maybe you could give us one or two of your favorite edible plants books and then maybe sure. a couple of recommendations on on the general prepping stuff. Okay. So the survival podcast, by the way, it sounds like it's just survival. It's not. It's this guy. His name is Jack Spearco. He's down in Texas. And he has a three and a half acre homestead. Most of it is homesteading skill. But it's also survival. It's some gun stuff. It's, it's all different. Raising your own animals. He does a lot with aquaponics, growing plants aquaponically from fish waste it's all different stuff so that's a really great resource there for hardcore survival skills the best book is the one that i got when i was like 11 tom brown's field guide to wilderness survival it's still and i have all kinds of books guys that is still by far the best one that i've ever read not even come close to it and then for wild edibles um there's a bunch 
Stalking the Wild Asparagus by the famous Yule Gibbons is great. Um, Barge's Harvest by Sam Thayer is great. Pearson's Field Guide to Wild Edibles is great just for identification. And then Tom Brown also has edible and medicinal plant books. Um, which only has a few dozen in there, but he really goes into a lot of depth and tells stories about each one. Nice. Are there any um, any apps that that can help in the identification of wild plants and edibles? Yeah, um, I have one on my phone. It's it's by the guy. Um, oh, he he has one of the best plant books too. I, it's right there in my bookcase. Identifying and harvesting edible and medicinal plants. It's by Wildman Steve Brill. Okay. I don't know if anyone in your audience have heard of this guy. This is the guy that got arrested for eating a dandelion in Central Park. <laughs> he has an app, a free app. I think it's free. I don't remember. I've had it on my phone a while. But he has a phone app with all these really nice images and descriptions of these plants. Cool. So, so that's kind of cool. Awesome. Well, Matt Gabriel, thank you so much for your time and sharing your knowledge today. I, this is like a whole new world of stuff to think about. And I hope that people who are planning tiny houses and, you know, think about how they can incorporate some of these things into their, into their designs. I hope so too. Thanks so much for having me, man. This is fun. Thank you so much to Matt Gabriel for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes, including links to Matt's YouTube channel at thetinyhouse.net slash 125. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 125. And don't forget to submit your questions for the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast to be answered live on an upcoming episode. To do that, just head over to thetinyhouse.net slash ask and then hit the appropriate button to record your question. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash ask. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.